0: Welcome back to Entertainment Weekly's binge of Friday Night Lights. I am Sam Heifel, better known as Slammin' Sammy.
1: And I'm Darren Franich, better known as Frontiago, the boy from the <coughs> wrong side of the tracks, who came here to teach us all a very important lesson about playing defense, I think. Sam, we've got a great show today. It's season two of Friday Night Lights. We're going to be talking about Landry kills a guy. That's a big thing. <laughs> We're going to be talking about Julie and the Swedish guy. We've got some great interviews with the cast. With the writers. This is a season of general madness, and it's going to be a really fun season to talk about.
0: I feel like we should kick things off with the obvious biggest plot of this entire season, which is the murder. So I'm just going to go ahead and say, Darren, what are your general feelings on this plot?
1: This is a storyline that echoes throughout TV history now. You know, season two of Friday Night Lights, the show was sort of almost barely picked up. It didn't have the biggest ratings. And that first episode, There's a lot of parts of it that are kind of strange but kind of interesting, too. You know, the first episode, you begin with this sort of pool party and T-Rex is playing. It's it's that song, uh, you you know, Bang-A-Gong. You can really feel that the show is trying to say, like you remember us. If you watched us last season, we're back. If you didn't watch us, what a fun show we are. We've got people by the (laughs) pool. We've got people like suddenly their water is breaking once they get into the pool. Who's that Swedish guy? So much excitement. Things do take a little turn when my personal favorite character of season one in an act of vengeful, ultimately justified rage kills a guy. And one of the things that really struck me. You know, the first time I saw that happen, the show had just had its first season, didn't really know what the future of it was. It's, It's easier now to watch that knowing that the show will continue on and will in some ways move on from that moment.
0: I think another one of the kind of quote unquote good things that did come out of the murder plot was the Landry and Tyra relationship, whether, you know, no matter how you feel about how they got together, I really love their dynamic. And I know when we spoke with Adrian Palicki, she kind of commented about how she liked the murder for that reason of that it got those two together and kind of made them take things to the next level.
2: Second season, we just, we just, like, decided not to talk about that one. That was, like, the storyline that just kind of went away on purpose. But the one thing about that storyline in season two, which I loved, was the fact that it did bring Landry and Tyra, this unlikely couple, together. And the thing that was so great about Landry is that he helped her see that she was worth more than what she was giving herself credit for. Yeah, and she was and she was so selfish <laughs> with him, and he was and he he
1: was so patient with her, but
2: that was kind of the sweet dynamic between the two characters.
1: But what I find mm-hmm. interesting rewatching it is it really sets a tone for season two because season two in general. It's like, um, you know, while I was rewatching season two, Westworld was on and I I, I kept on imagining like Jason Catum standing in front of all the characters with a little like iPod where he can kinda of, you know, he he can control their personality. And it's like he just took all of their aggression levels up to ten. It's so aggro. Everyone gets into fights. And I, I, and so in that sense, as much as that storyline isn't as successful as some other stuff, it definitely sets the tone for the season in a way. And I, I think that I could appreciate that more in context. But how did it play for you kind of, you know, rewatching it after all these years?
0: Yeah, it was weird for me because when I first watched it, and I think I've talked about this, I pretty much kind of like binged it by myself. I wasn't really watching it live with other people. No one in my family really watched it. So I had no idea that like the world was kind of upset about this storyline. And so I just kind of watched it as like, okay, that happened. Like, (laughs) moving on. (laughs) (laughs) And I just kind of went with it. And I do think that there are good things to come out of it. And so I enjoy that aspect of it. But it was funny for me going back and rewatching it. And realizing just how maybe crazy it was, especially because Friday Night Lights is so the opposite of that throughout its first season. Everyone is just kind of the simple Texas person who, like, the most exciting thing that's going to happen is maybe Coach Taylor loses his job. I mean, obviously, Jason Street gets paralyzed. That's a huge thing. But there is no sort of, like, element of danger, really. And so it kind of, yeah, it's like this dark cloud came and, like, stayed, hovered over Dylan, Texas, for the entire season. Well, exactly right. I I think that's
1: a perfect way of putting it. It feels as if it is somehow violating what you thought the show was, but in an interesting way. I mean, one thing I thought a lot about watching this season is it'd be great for TV creators, not necessarily for TV audiences, if every TV creator was told at the start of one season, guys, this is your just try everything season. This is your mm. throw it all at the wall don't necessarily worry about if it fits in with the show, just push out in every direction. And this season does a lot of that. I mean, you know, we'll talk a little bit later about, you know, there are trips to Mexico. There's a lot more about religion. There's a lot more about the sort of world around Dylan. And, you know, I I think on some level the show was pushing against its own boundaries. And the most extreme example of that is What essentially is like a Southern Gothic murder plot line (laughs) wedged right into what is generally a very kind and endearing and generous TV show. And one thing that I think almost kind of works about it is... Landry, who last season was the most lovable character, we're clearly meeting him in a time of change. He's joining the football team, which the first time around I thought that was kind of strange. And this time, like, I actually like how that gives us just a greater sense of, you know, not everyone on the football team is is a Smash Williams. Not everyone is, like, an all star player who's going to go on to play in the NFL. So I feel as if the show was really trying to say, like, what can we do with this? And, um, they decided to kill someone. And, you know, the, the hard thing is that then there are just long episodes of Landry and Tyra kind of almost in a very meta way asking themselves, like, what what happened? Like, how did this... How did this happen? And where do we go from here? Which led to, I, I have to say, my favorite line of the whole season is when uh, Landry has just gotten his rally girl. And he asks her... I'm gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase here. Do you think all human beings are capable of evil? And it's just... <laughs> It's an incredible line reading. And the fact that they're doing comedy around this sort Mm -hmm. of horrible death is interesting. Again, I'm not sure that it works, but it works better than I remember it working, if that makes any sense.
0: No, totally. And I do think one of the good things that came out of it was that Jesse Plemons really got to just flex some different acting muscles. Like, I remember, like, story aside, the scene where he goes in to confess for all of this. And the episode starts with him in the police station. And first of all, I just remember loving like the way they shot that entire episode. But I was just like, this is a guy who was great in season one, but who was almost solely comedic relief. He was a good friend who was funny and didn't necessarily get the football world. And he stood out and whatever. And here he was breaking down. And I just remember thinking like, holy crap, this guy can act.
1: Yeah, Totally. Which, I love well, well, and of course, you know Jesse Plemons, who's gone on to have such a great career. I realized because I loved him so much in season two of Fargo. This was when we learned Jesse Plemons is really good at like accidentally killing people. That's that's one of his <laughs> that's one of his skills as an actor. But I agree with you, and you know, who also works is his father, played by the great character actor Glenn Morshauer, Who, by the way, they look so stunningly alike; it's it's insane. Yes, um, his father is really great, and that dynamic is really great, and there is a way of watching season two where I think if you kind of tell yourself, this is sort of a different show and it's not really season one and it doesn't feel that much like the seasons that'll follow, but it is, you know, perhaps on a more soap operatic level or a more melodramatic level, like these are good actors doing good material around this. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's wedged in strangely with, you know, Julie's dating the Swede and like, you know, Riggins is on a, you know, season long trip to find a place to live. It's just, it's, There's a lot of interesting dissonance there. What interests me is that I know like a lot of people thought this was sort of a, you know, the network told the Friday Night Mm -hmm. Lights producers, you got to kill someone. And my understanding is like that's not really the case, right?
0: Right, yeah. We actually, when we talked to writers Carrie Aaron and Bridget Carpenter, they talked about how NBC had nothing to do with this storyline. And what I found really interesting is they kind of spoke about how Everyone seemed to feel like Friday Night Lights was like this slice of life show. And that's why this murder was out of place. But at least in the way they saw it, this was a town kind of filled with crazy people.
3: I feel like something happens at the beginning of a second season of any show, which Mm -hmm. is that you kind of play out the pilot in the first year. And then the Mm -hmm. second year, you're like, you feel the need to kind of reinvent a little bit to get new seeds growing. And I think it came more out of that of kind of wanting to, like, turn up the jets a little bit. And, you know, I still, I think I'm one of the, probably one of the only people <laughs> that really still, I I like that storyline. It's like I do. I, you know, I do, too. You I don't do feel it. defensive about it at all. I, I, don't I, I remember I like exactly it. why we did it.
4: I, I actually was, I was shocked at the animus <laughs> towards it. Yeah, was I, I I was shocked because I was sort of like, hey man, it's TV, people, things happen, and and I will say too that like I really enjoyed all the kind of like great gifts it gave us, which was Landry and Tyra getting really close and getting to have like there was that was. I'm sure, every, you know, with hindsight, we could all go, oh, there's so many ways we could have made them friends, but we made them close and gave them a kind of, like, love relationship and love friendship, and that was kind of fantastic, and we also got to explore Landry's home life in a really dynamic way, in a way that wasn't just kind of, like, static, like, it mattered.
3: Yeah, and also, like, I think people thought, like, oh, it's not like small town in America, and it's like Friday Night Lights is, like, about these real slice of life things. And mm-hmm. it, honestly, that was never really my personal perception of Friday Night Lights. I thought it no, was a never. story about a town where everyone wasn't crazy. was crazy, yeah. It's like everyone had drank the Kool Aid and that's sort of what kept it spinning and then the slice of life stuff was within that world but it but it wasn't it just like you know small town USA storytelling about like families it's like it was never that it was about people who no, crazy. and just to go back to the landry murder thing i think also a lot of the um reaction to that had something to do with people feeling like NBC had asked for it There was sort of like a sense, like a political thing, like oh, they're like they were like uh, like make it more networky, and it was they made you play ball. It it could not have been farther from the truth. So I think that was also sort of wrapped up in that, um, right?
4: Because NBC was throughout the entirety of our show was constantly in turmoil. So there was always that attached to it. We never knew until season four that we were going to have another season. We were always writing, like, well, we're going to be canceled.
3: Oh, right. yeah. Every time I walked out of always. that office at the end of the year, I would cry. Because I would be like, well, that's so good yeah. 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 And, <laughs> and I didn't
4: decorate. I never, deca- I never put anything up Me in neither. my offices.
1: Nothing. <laughs> One of the things I found interesting about that is what she was saying about the town of crazy people That is what this season is about. Again, like, I was saying this earlier, but just, like, everyone is so aggro all the time. This is the season where Tammy slaps Julie. This is the season where Saracen, he tackles Smash. Saracen, you know, gets angry at his car. And again, like, I'm not quite making fun of this stuff. It's just so unusual in the context of season one. This season Mm -hmm. ends with Coach Taylor tackling Peter Berg into a table. I mean, there's just, (laughs) there's sort of, like, nonstop fighting this season. And... Uh, in one respect, I want to say whether it's more realistic or not. This is certainly a season where all the characters are pushed to these emotional brinks in a way that I- I'm not really sure we saw in season one. Or maybe it's mm-hmm. may- maybe it's more accurate to say, in season one, you know, they would suffer a lot, and in season two, their id kind of gets unleashed, and they just are constantly. I mean, you know, Street and Herc fight at one point. Like everyone's just <laughs> fighting, and I guess m- maybe that's why this season feels strange. Is You know, Mm -hmm. this is a show where you want to see... Eric Taylor and Tammy Taylor together in the kitchen, talking and bantering back and forth. And so, when it begins for the first four episodes with them just separated, I'm not sure if there's any non-depressing way to tell that story, you know? And Mm -hmm. I want to give them credit for trying to sort of push beyond that, but it does create this strange thing where the murder, once that happens, you're just kind of waiting eight episodes for them to kind of wrap that up and then get back to normal. And Coach Taylor Mm -hmm. leaving, you're waiting four episodes for them to wrap that up and get back to normal. And so there's just a weird sense of, are we moving forward are we kind of moving back to the status quo? but again, they were pushing in lots of different directions and I want to kind of respect that in a way even if it's not all successful.
0: Are you saying that we should call this season Friday Night Fight? Yes, yes. <laughs> Incredible.
1: <laughs> But literally, Sam. Each episode. I mean, like, God. I started making a list at some point. I mean, I don't know if this quite counts, but like, there. This is the season where the tornado comes in. It's as if. Oh my God. It's as if, like, like, like the world itself is just sort of like in constant rebellion. Um, and again, I, I just think that. There's a way of looking at the season of just, if you took all these characters and just really pumped them full of caffeine or something like that, then this is what you would get. And it's good in a way, I mean, I can recall when this season ended, it was right in the middle of the writer's strike. It was very unclear if it was going to come back. Had this been the last season, it would have certainly been a bummer, but seeing how this was really them testing the boundaries and then pulling back from them. I have more respect for this season, if not necessarily more love.
0: Well, I feel like you mentioned a lot of things that I now want to talk about, all of them. But I want to start at the beginning with the Taylor family. Eric's gone. Julie's the worst Darren. She's being awful. She wants to date the Swede who has never washed his hair in his life, who I have no idea why she's into this guy. And she rightfully gets slapped in the face by her mother. Actually, I shouldn't say rightfully. That's awful. I shouldn't do that. But it was a very, very dramatic scene. Are you going to defend Julie right Listen, now? Listen,
1: I am a hashtag Team Julie for life. Here's what I'll say about that whole plot line. First of all, the Swede Is the craziest character who ever came on Friday Night Lights. He is not Swedish. He does not. He does not look. Swedes are like generally. You know, I'm thinking about like you know Scandinavian people. This guy is essentially the bassist for the Strokes. Uh, He just everything about him is so strange. There's one point where Tammy actually says, and by the way, Connie Britton is doing such great work this whole season.
0: Oh, so great. There's
1: a point where she says, like, you're dating a guy who doesn't seem to have a name. And then at that point, Julie says, his name is Anton. And I'm like, Anton? I don't think that's a Swedish <laughs> name. So nothing about him makes any sense whatsoever. Here's what I will say, though. like We're at the beginning of an interesting dynamic with Julie. This is the season, I think, where a lot of people started to turn against her, because Mm -hmm. season one, she was the most teenaged, teenaged character on the show. You could really kind of understand her dynamic. This is the season where she's constantly fighting with her mom, fighting with people, generally being quite standoffish, flirting with a teacher at one point. And it all starts with the Swede. And this is kind of just what teenagers do sometimes. Like, you know, they kind of mess up. You get the sense that her and Matt have hit this weird standstill in their relationship. You obviously want to kind of say, oh, Matt Sayerson, and he's the nicest guy ever. But it's not like, you know, he's not really doing too much to keep the romance alive, I would say. He seems like he's being very moody. Uh, this is another plot line where it's very clear that there's not a whole lot of through line to it. At some point, mm-hmm. she kind of just realizes, like, oh, yeah, the Swede is, like, a lame, like, wannabe indie rock dude who drinks beer and, like, hangs out in, like, the Williamsburg corner of, of Dylan. And, you know, I think Amy Garden does a good job with really difficult material. But again, it's just you want to see the tailors together. And so when the right. first four episodes are them just being so disparate, I'm not sure this is the kind of show where sending characters off in a million directions, Game of Thrones style, does it the most justice. So in conclusion, I am still also, also, this is the season where Julie goes to work for the newspaper and gets told she has to cut 500 words. That is every conversation that I have with my editors. So I'm still, I'm still team Julie for life.
0: Whether it was the newspaper storyline or the Swede storyline, Julie definitely went through some things in season two. And I know when we talked to Amy Teagarden, she spoke a little bit about her struggle to relate to this character in some of her maybe brattier times. Personally, if I was ever that much of a brat in my own life,
2: my mother would have lost it. Uh, there's no way I could have gotten away with half the things she did. But I think as an actor, you kind of have to you know, be 110% in it or it doesn't work. And so I think there, for me, my own process with Julie was really kind of about empathizing with her and trying to figure out where she was coming from and trying to be as in line with that as I possibly could.
0: I will say, you mentioned that Amy does, like, a really good job with these scenes and this material. And I think as much as I hated Eric being away even though it did give us one of my favorite scenes, which is so small, and I don't know why I'm obsessed with it, is there's like a moment when he's frustrated, and he calls home, and like Glenn is in the kitchen, and Eric gets so mad, and he's like, why is Glenn in my house? And that's like forever one of my favorite <laughs> moments for some reason. But, like, there is no part of me that wants to see the Taylors apart, but it does give such great material. Again, maybe the story's a little dramatic, whatever, but in terms of acting, the stuff that Connie gets to do, the stuff that Amy gets to do, and I know when we talked to Connie, like, she spoke about the fact that season two gave her some of her favorite stuff in terms of postpartum depression and kind of the more dramatic storylines.
2: It's funny, you mentioned season two, and, and of course season two gets a bad rap. Like, people are always like, oh, season two, and, you know, we wish it never happened and all this stuff, you know. But I really, because that was where I, like, had postpartum depression, and and that was, like, for me, like, that that was a really interesting season to play, and I'm always like... I oh, hate season two, but like it was actually just yeah, you know interesting, very real stuff to play, you know to to be playing the and and for me of course as as a woman, like I'm also always interested in playing things that feel very accessible and real and to uh, to other women, and so you know I, I got to play a lot of things that season that felt very true in terms of postpartum depression and trying to manage having a new baby and then also an older daughter who's acting out and, you know, balancing career and trying to be a decent wife and not feeling good about, you know, all those things. So I liked all that stuff.
1: I think that what she said is so right because this season in some respects feels like what if you took all the characters from season one and then just spent a lot of season two sending them off on separate journeys, which it's not quite as engaging as, I mean, season one, it's just crazy how good it was and how everything could all get kind of wrapped up all together in the football and in the town and the politics of the town. What Connie Britton is talking about is a lot of Tammy's journey this season feels a little more individual. I mean, like she is mm-hmm. pregnant and then she's going through some postpartum depression. And then, you know, she's dealing with her sister and Her sister is not necessarily the most well-drawn character ever. Really, I mean, it's sad because I really love that actress, Jessalyn Gilsig, who was on Boston Public before. But she's definitely the most kind of poochie-esque character in the season. Mm -hmm. Like, she's sort of brought in. You're not really clear on, like, what are you doing? And then there's that point in the back half of the season when they're kind of getting rid of those characters and she leaves. But everything about that dynamic on Tammy's side and everything about her kind of seeing, you know... My sister and her life and how it's different from my life. And listen, I got to say, any show where there's a serious conversation between two married people about are we both going to work and how is that going to work out? Mm -hmm. I, I think that the show does that kind of real emotional stuff so well, even when it's kind of at the far extremes of its of its like, you know, dramatic side. While we're talking about the Taylors, we're all Team Tammy for life, we're all Team Eric for life, I'm Team Julie for life. We talked to Zach Guilford, who had uh, kind of a different perspective on the relationship with Julie this season.
5: I was, like, lobbying for, like, seasons. I was like, I don't understand why Matt is so in love with this girl. He should dump her. She treats him like crap. Like, he needs to move on. And then when he, like, hooked up with, like, you know, like, the care worker, I was like, yeah, this is the kind of woman that he deserves. And then she ditched him, and he went back to Julie, and it was like a mess.
0: (laughs) And I have to say, I wholeheartedly agree with Zach. I think Matt does deserve someone better than Julie. But at the same time, I'm going to sit here and say that, like, I wanted them to end up together. I was always rooting for them. But I was always like, Julie needs to be nicer to Matt, especially with the Swede business. I don't know what your feelings were on Carlota, but I just kind of thought she was fine. Like I didn't really care. I'm not going to I don't know that she was his perfect match, but she seemed nice.
1: People need to sort of understand. Like I'm not sure anyone is ever going to be writing this kind of drama this way again because so often now TV dramas, you're writing the whole season ahead of time. You know, the seasons are a lot shorter now than they often used to be both, you know, on cable and, and on network. You really feel this season like a lot of times they were just throwing it all on the wall and seeing what stuck. And so on some level, it feels very soapy, this idea of we're going to bring in a very attractive, very mm-hmm. cool, live-in potential love interest for Matt Saracen and some of it's kind of hokey I kind of love that one moment at the end of Matt Saracen has has a couple great episodes this season where he's just getting beaten up and there's that great moment at the end of that one episode when she's kind of singing to him and I like that that feels very human there's a point in this season where Carlotta says I have to go back to Guatemala my family needs me and she just says that over and over again. My, my family needs me. My family needs me. You can feel that, like, the writers themselves were sort of like, oh, boy, we need to just really, we might just need to kind of send this person home now. That's I, I feel like that relationship probably works the least well just because it feels very... Very fantastical in a way that, you know, I can believe that Julie could fall for a sort of proto-hipster guy. Very hard for me to believe that whoever just sent over this awesome live-in nurse for Matt Saracen <laughs> to have a brief fall fling with. I think the same episode that they reveal that the Swede's name is Anton, that's the episode where Eric Taylor, in his sort of brief sojourn as a college coach, he is taking a player from his college team who's had some issues in front of a review board and kind of teaching him some lessons. And that player's name, Sam, is also Anton. There's a a weird, there's a lot of just like like strange reality bending that's happening in this season, which leads to a theory that uh, I will share with you soon. But uh, while we're on the topic of Matt Saracen the penultimate episode of season two is like the Matt Saracen freak out episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've always felt like that is a great episode because his frustrations in that moment are almost kind of like your frustrations with the show in some way. Like, you know, you, you're just so like, God, like why isn't this quite working the same way? And everyone's talking about how last season we were championship team and this season we are not even gonna make the playoffs. How do you kind of feel about like that episode and, and Matt Saracen in general this season?
0: One of my favorite Matt Saracen moments of this entire season is when coach Taylor like throws him in the shower in all his clothes and turns the water on and is like basically suck it up like because he's been drinking Matt Saracen is just like on a struggle bus this season and poor guy like when your girlfriend leaves you for a Swedish guy who's not Swedish you just don't know what to do your hot nurse leaves you for family and it's this whole problem but I love this scene but as I'm sitting here I'm like It's interesting because, in a way, Eric Taylor is slapping Matt to, like, wake up and get on. And then you have Tammy Taylor literally slapping her daughter these parallel moments for this young couple of, like wake up guys you gotta live your life a little bit better that's
1: interesting No, you're right I I like that and that works on a lot of levels it just seems as if the show itself in both cases is saying like wake up like get back (laughs) on track like you know this is a show that needs to somehow be about football in this small town. And Matt Saracen, you can't go to strip clubs during the daytime, and you can't be drinking at Applebee's, and you can't be like playing around. Like you need to pay attention to your responsibilities. And I think you're right to draw that parallel because certainly that's true of boy, that's definitely true of Julie also. Like Julie, like you can't be flirting with John from Cincinnati, teacher. Like you know, you need to really like you like focus in a little bit here. What about old Tim Riggins? How do you feel about Tim Riggins' journey this season?
0: Obviously, as I have said before, and I will say it again right now, Tim Riggins moving in with the Taylors is probably my favorite storyline of Friday Night Lights ever. Now, if we're going to backtrack, Tim Riggins moving in with ferret owner, meth dealer (laughs) guy who was actually in season one as a different character.
1: Oh. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. he was
0: the guy who worked at the drugstore in season one and would not sell beer to Jason Street when Tim Riggins came by and was like, "This is mine or whatever," and got Street beer. That was guy, except it wasn't because he didn't have like that gross methy. Look.
1: <laughs> Do you think he just kind of really fell on hard times in the intervening year? Like he was, he had a good job <laughs> as a convenience store clerk, and then it all, it all just went south. But see, what's funny is. As much as this season is not as successful as the other seasons, I think this is the season where Tim Riggins truly became the icon that we all kind of know and love. Because even at the end of season one, I mean, listen, he was always, like, this incredible, moody, attractive, renegade, jock, cowboy person. But... but (laughs) But this season just you gain so much more of an understanding of him as this true outsider in a way. And like by the time he moves in with the Taylors, we've already seen him, you know, he tries to get back with Lila, he tries to kind of go to church, he try you know, mm-hmm. he he leaves his brother. It's so sad it doesn't last longer, but him playing ping pong with Coach Taylor, that's an all-time moment, right? That's all-time top 10 Friday Night Lights for me, I think.
0: I was, yeah, I was going to say, if I had to call out three moments from that entire kind of plot that I adore, one is... Tammy walking out into the garage and Coach just going, honey, we're playing ping pong. And like the (laughs) delivery of that line is just, I could watch it over and over. And then as we mentioned earlier, the tornado sequence is part of my love of that scene, wanting to be held by Tim Riggins and protected. Yes, obviously. Totally, Totally. And that
1: scene is great too. His dynamic between him and Julie, I think that's also really important because seeing him in this way where paternal is the wrong word, but just where he can be someone's guardian, you know, or he can be someone's big brother. Like, he's not just the sort of super debaucherous football player who's going to sleep with all the rally girls. Like, he is that, but somehow there's a true gentleness to him in that moment that I think is super important. And it comes out so strongly in my other favorite moment from that interaction when Julius had too much to drink at the party. And Riggins pulls that guy aside and he basically tells him, like, you know, if if I ever see you looking at her again, like, I'm going to break your face in. It's such a great moment because you're like, oh, Riggins, like, you can be a superhero, also. You are not just this destructive force in people's life. You know, you can actually kind of turn around and use your powers for good in a way that is just really like invigorating for that character. I, I think.
0: Yeah, I think the exact quote was something like, "I will end you." That's what it was. Yes. Oh, or th- yeah, and it's so great, and it shows like this whole entire storyline. Ultimately, what it shows is his heart. This guy who maybe originally kind of came off as a little bit of a drunk, he didn't treat Tyra that well, he slept with his best friend's girlfriend, like maybe, but it showed that like at its core, Riggins is like this sweet guy, and that's why my other favorite scene that comes out of that entire thing is... After Coach realizes, like, Julie tells him the truth, Coach knows what happens and that Riggins not only got his daughter home safe, but kept his mouth shut and took the blame in order to protect, like, Coach's image of Julie. And they get to have that beautiful conversation where he, like, tells him what that means about who he is as a person and how great that is. And, like, I could just watch Coach and Riggins for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I want to. Yeah. And, you know...
1: There's something that happens a lot in this season where there'll be this this very brief status quo like Tim living with the Taylors. That is actually weirdly a very a not very long storyline, but you want it to last longer. And I think that kind of comes back to how this season was composed. Like, it just feels as if with a lot of these characters, they're sending them off in a lot of different directions. And so even when they find an interesting groove like that, they're ultimately kind of sending them off in another direction. Uh, We talked a little bit to uh, the writers about some of their plans for how the season was going to end up before the writers' strike. And it deals specifically with Riggins' journey that we never
3: actually quite got to see. And having such a sort of homeless existence as I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bridget, but was to ultimately get him tied back into Lila. Yeah. And, and reconnect with her in a real way, you yeah. know, because they had kind of blown up in the first season and they got together under such bizarre and excruciating circumstances. And I, I, as I recall, like, that was like a huge part of the emotional architecture of that season was we were building toward them sort of, finding each other again at the end and and then sadly this the stupid mm-hmm. then we went stupid. on strike. <laughs> <The> strike happened. <laughs> I I just I always was so mad we didn't get to do that part because that yep. was like feeding That's, me. We that were that driving. Like, that was what that was what I wanted to see. I wanted to see those beautiful moments of them like finding each other again and it being real and it being big and, and we never yeah. got to play that, which was sad. No. Nope. Yeah, and we were cut off at the knees for sure. Yeah. That was the one,
4: and also, like, I really felt like we had a really clear idea. We were, like, 22. We know what we're doing. Yeah. Like, yeah. I felt like we really knew. We had I those know. other things, ideas, and then it been a good we had to talk about it. it would have been a good <laughs> season.
1: One thing that I find really interesting about this idea is it comes back to, Sam, how you choose to watch season two, and I kind of mm-hmm. struggle with this because, if I were to tell someone now they're just starting to watch Friday Night Lights, what do I tell them about season two? There's some moments in this season that are just so crazy that you almost want to kind of say, maybe you can skip this season. Like, you know, maybe this is just way too extreme from what the rest of the show is and it may actually impact your enjoyment of it. But then there's also moments that are incredible, that are as good as anything the show ever did. And I really think that the fact that there was a grander plan for this season and the fact that, you know, A lot of this season between Riggins and Lila is them kind of slowly moving back together. And you want to say, Mm -hmm. okay, like, had there been a payoff of that, that would have ultimately felt different than it does now. As it is now, there's these just moments of them crossing over, some of which are incredible. I mean, Riggins starting his own radio show, I would listen to that every day. (laughs) Even if it is entirely just girls calling in to ask him for his number. Watching this season is to me the definition of really being like both a fan and a connoisseur because you're really seeing like this isn't quite what they wanted it to be and it's not quite as complete as it could have been, but it gives you insight into where the show is going ultimately, uh, which I definitely like a lot.
0: Guys, we need to talk. If you are anything like me and you are insanely busy by the time you get home, you don't have a lot of time to A, figure out what you wanna make for dinner, and B, make it. And this is where Blue Apron comes in. I am a new lover of Blue Apron. I recently made some amazing chicken and kale and mushrooms and all these wonderful things. And it took me like less than an hour and it was delicious. And I have to tell you, Blue Apron makes it so easy. They ship you the exact amount of each ingredient required for the recipe that you're making. That is not only reducing food waste, but it also just makes your life very, very easy. Blue Apron can be delivered to up to 99% of the continental U.S. so you can have it too, make this happen. And even better yet, if you check out this week's menu, you can get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com binge. That is blueapron.com slash B-I-N-G-E. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's BlueApron.com slash binge. Blue Apron, a better way to cook.
1: While we're talking about uh, Riggins and Lila, we should talk about Jason Street. Jason Street goes on a journey this season, Sam. Here's what I'll say just at the top. Scott Porter is such a goddamn good actor, and he's given some, let's say, strange material this season, Uh, some of it involving shark DNA and stem cells. (laughs) And in some respects, Jason Street, where he is at the start of this season, it feels like it makes sense. He's a coach. That's what you want to see happen. But I really think the show wants to kind of ask the question of, is that all he wants to do? Like, he has that great line about, this town is a fishbowl, and nobody ever changes, and I really want to change. And I think that's expressing a lot of interesting stuff. Unfortunately, some of that expression is them going to Mexico, which I will say, I'd forgotten about the karaoke scene. That is one of the greatest things that has ever happened on television. Everything around it is a little janky, but I love that. I love Riggins trying to bribe the police officer and finding, <laughs> like, finding as he says, the one honest police officer in, in Mexico. Like that, that, I think, is great for them, too, because you do realize that it's been oddly rare to see these two guys just hang out together as friends. It's always been so weighted between them with his injury and Riggins, you know, sleeping with Lila. And I think that's important for that moment. But how do you feel about that in general? That is definitely one of the other kind of infamous left turns that the that season takes as far as sending the characters on a strange sojourn.
0: I have always been utterly fascinated, but also slightly confused by the moment in which Lila kisses Tim and then kisses Jason or whatever order it's in, kisses one, then kisses the other, and then it just, like, is kind of like, okay, the scene's over. Like, what is that? No,
1: no, what she says, Sam, is, I mean, I love that scene. It feels very, I'm not sure if you've ever seen Itumama Tambián, Tambien, but it feels almost, like, eerily, like, it's, it's replicating a scene from that movie. But what she says at the end of that scene is, I gotta go pray. There is something interesting in that scene about, like, the dynamic between these three, and you almost want to see more of that, but then they 're not really together again in the well not mm. maybe not maybe not more of that, but maybe not more of that <laughs> specifically, but you, you want to see more of that dynamic these people who you know they 've been friends for so long, two of them were in love and were going to get married, two of them had a very tempestuous relationship there 's just a lot of crackle there. But then the show kind of says, OK, but we're going to send her back to the Christian radio station and we're going to send Riggins back on his journey and Streets going to go mm-hmm. work at the car dealership. And it feels as if, again, it's an example of the show is pushing its characters in lots of directions when on some level as a viewer, you want to see them together in, in some respect, if not necessarily romantically linked together. Although that would be a hot menage a trauma. I'm just saying.
0: No, but, like, speaking to Mexico, the thing I like about that story is what it is, I think, at the base of it, which is you see this kid who was seemingly, like, the greatest football star this amazing town had seen in years, and he had this huge future ahead of him. And in season one, we watch all that get taken away from him, and while we do see him struggle with it, He handles it pretty freaking well. I mean, he's a teenager. And so what I appreciate about this story is that it is essentially him freaking out. It's him contemplating, is my life worth it if I'm not able to play football? Like, I have to do whatever it takes to fix this. And I think those are, I don't know this, but I would imagine that those are thoughts that do go through someone's head when everything is taken from them. So I like that it's putting him on that journey Did it need to be set in Mexico and involve shark DNA? I don't know. But, like, I appreciate the story it's telling. And I was was moved by, like, the idea that Jason, the scene on the boat when he, like, contemplates drowning himself, I guess— is him giving up and then realizing, like, what am I doing? Why am I giving up? I have so much to live for. Again, maybe it didn't need to be done in such a dramatic fashion, but I liked that they at least had him kind of go through that because now he can just, like climb his way back to wherever he wants to go. Totally.
1: And, you know, again, some people might respond to that and say, didn't we kind of already see him triumph over this? And isn't it strange that kind of one year later, he kind of tells Tammy, like, I think I'm going to walk again. Like, that seems like something that he would have gotten over earlier. I'm with you on the idea that it works on an emotional level. I just think Scott Porter is so good at getting across like this character's incredible desperate energy you know you always have that feeling watching Jason Street that like this is just someone who had such control over his body who was such a great athlete mm-hmm. and now it's just like all that energy is there in his eyes and in you know what little parts of his body he can still control and it, it does lead to I mean, some of my favorite stuff with him. He's a darn good car salesman. I would I would buy a car from him for sure. <laughs> um, and it leads to something that for me is one of the more just sort of like lovely surprises of the season, uh, which is him and the waitress and their mm-hmm. kind of lovely little one night stand that becomes so much more. And on the scale of very melodramatic things, having as a key plot line this miraculous pregnancy that seems very unlikely to happen. As with a lot of stuff this season, you need to sort of meet it more than halfway to accept it. But it produces a lot of great moments with Jason Street and it produces a lot of great moments for that character. So it works in interesting ways, even if you know he does have to briefly consider. For a second, Sam, when he jumped in the water, I was actually thinking, wait, did he already have the shark DNA like put into him?
0: <laughs> you thought he was gonna like start moving his Is legs? Is he gonna
1: become a like a like mutant shark person? I don't know. That would still oh be that would still be a somewhat less crazy show than some of the kind of you know Landry murder murder subplot stuff. While we're talking about some of the team captains, uh, former and current. We should address mm-hmm. some of the stuff that happens this season to Smash Williams.
0: Another fight.
1: For, well, boy, lots of lots of fighting this season. God, Friday night fights. I'm so excited you came <laughs> up with that. Um, <laughs> you know, Sam, I want to say right at the top here, I want to blow your mind just a little bit. We were watching this season, and my girlfriend suddenly mentioned, so his full name is Brian Williams. I said, yeah. And she said... Was that like an NBC tie-in thing? Because Brian Williams had just started hosting the main news hour two years before this show started. And now I can't get that out of my head. Brian Williams as in like newsman Brian Williams. I had never realized that before. Wait, then why was
0: his nickname Smash? Like, what does that mean? Well,
1: well, that I'm not so sure about. But I just, you know, (laughs) I want to call that out for general like, you know, NBC crossover stuff. Smash has an interesting season. When we meet him it kind of seems like all of the all the stuff that he experienced last season, all the deepening of his character, that kind of goes out the window. Like, he's kind of right back to being this super, like, you know, jockey, full-of-himself guy. Uh, you know, he's talking a lot about going to college, and, like, you know, Waverly, as we mentioned before, is nowhere to be seen. And I, I think that they were trying to do so much outside of the football sphere this season And I think as a result, Smash just kind of suffered. Because Smash, on some level, it's all football with him. Everything kind of comes back to his skill and his talents and his dreams for his future. You know, then you get to the back half of the season, and it's really exciting. He gets the offer to go to TMU. As far as being interesting, but not necessarily successful as drama, uh, the episode where he goes to meet his his girlfriend's parents, his girlfriend's Mm -hmm. parents are white, They say that they're uncomfortable with it. His mom says they're uncomfortable with it. They sort of introduce the idea of racism in Dylan. And then immediately after that, there is the moment with the racist guys at the movie theater. You know, I like that they bring that up, but it definitely is brought up somewhat strangely. You know, how did you kind of feel about how that played out and how, how Smash in general fits into this season?
0: Yeah, it definitely feels, the more I think about it now, it almost feels like they were using racism to get to the story they wanted. Yeah. It was like they wanted Smash to have his scholarship revoked. Like they wanted the drama of that moment. Like what is what does Smash do if football is taken away from him? But in order to... Like how do you get there? Well, maybe we p- like play the racism card again. Right. And so to that point like it's not great but I will say like I the thing I really enjoyed about it I remember when I watched it because he also had the movie theater incident where he gets in the fight he also has his sister with him and like there was a little bit more this season where I felt like he got to be Big Brother Smash as opposed to or Big Brother Brian I should say as opposed to Smash Williams and so like I liked that we kind of got to see that side of him I didn't Love, kind of all of the the crazy stuff. I don't like. I think I would have been fine watching Smash just go successfully off the. But to you couch. know, what, but you
1: know what? The, like you're bringing up something so important. I mean. The most interesting thing about Smash Williams is when you first meet him, he seems like he's just such an over-the-top person, so full of himself and self-involved. But where that comes from is a place of feeling on some deep level that his whole family is depending on him, that his mom Mm -hmm. and his sisters and their financial future is all resting on his shoulders. And Whenever the show gets into that, I always think that is really when it seems to kind of see him the most clearly. Um, We talked to Gaius Charles, who played Brian Smash Williams, about uh, the first time he read the script for the movie theater incident, and he he brought up a lot of interesting points about how moments like that are really unique to Friday Night Lights.
5: You know, as soon as the script lands in your trailer, as soon as the script is dropped off at your plate, it's just like you're just in it, you know? And, and I... (laughs) I I remember just reading when, when I got scripts, just like, just just like diving into the page. If that makes you know, if that makes sense, just really wanting to figure out, okay, like where are we going with this? Because um, we would get some kind of sense of like where the writers were going, but until it lands on the page, until you have in your hand, um, you know, you 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 don't you don't know what exactly the storyline will be, and um, you know, I, I I I just remember thinking that it was really cool i just remember thinking that it's really interesting you know i think the other thing about the show that people were drawn to is a lot of the storylines didn't necessarily follow kind of the cookie cutter network tv um you know you know predictable storyline and so when you got to see that struggle you know when you got to see the stakes when you got to see, you know, how is Smash not only like you said this large and life character, this this you know, jock kind of character, but how is he the big brother? You know? Um and then how does he kind of balance that out between the racism, the the scholarships, the expectations, football, um, the family stuff, you know, um, so I mean to answer question I guess I saw it like I saw most of the scripts and thought, all right, let's go, let's do it, and just kind of jumped right in, you know?
1: One more thing that I want to blow your mind with about on the Smash Williams subplot, uh, Sam. Okay. So in the season finale, which was not supposed to be the season finale, uh, we see Smash uh, having lost out on his dreams of going to a big football school. Coach Taylor takes him down to Whitmore College. One of the things that is interesting about that scene, so he's talking to the coach. Uh, the guy's name is Coach Deeks. And the coach Deeks is telling him, you know, I told Coach Taylor back in seventh grade that you were going to be a star. Sam, we have seen Coach Deeks before. Is
0: that the guy from the pilot?
3: That is the
1: guy from the pilot. Uh, it's a, oh, he's, my God. He's an incredible actor. Uh, uh, his his name is Matthew Greer. Way back in the pilot, we talked about this. There's that moment where Coach Taylor, at that time, the new coach of the Dylan Panthers, is talking to a guy who seems to be kind of a scout for him. They're talking about Westerby, but Coach Taylor calls that guy Coach. Uh, that that character is Coach Deeks, um, or or at least that it's the same actor, and he seems to be playing the same character, which to me gets into, you know, this show, whatever it's doing with its main characters there's this great tapestry of just minor characters who are kind of all around. And, you know, it's a mm-hmm. lot of kind of local Texan actors who, who they worked with. And I think there's that sense of authenticity that I find really interesting. But, yeah, so just for as a minor fun continuity thing, we did actually see that character again. And I love
0: that we solved that mystery. We
1: Mystery solved. That was Coach Deeks. He's now down at, at Whitmore College. Sam, uh, we should talk a little bit about the most important character of the season, Fair to say. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm talking, of course, about Santiago. Now, Santiago, uh, this is another character who comes in for a little bit of confusion. He sort of is introduced, he's never brought back after this season. We go on an interesting journey with him, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, that journey involves a lot of great stuff between him and, uh, Buddy. Buddy, who, by yes. the way, he might be my MVP of the season just for all the things we see him do and all the kind of journey that, that he goes on. But, uh, you know, Santiago seems to kind of disappear at some point. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, how'd you feel about, how'd you feel about that character and how he kind of fit into the show, uh, in, in this season, Sam?
0: Well, I was really glad, Darren, when you and I started talking about doing this podcast, and we both were so upset about whatever happened to Santiago. He's an interesting character. He's an interesting character. (laughs) He's got these wonderful puppy eyes, and he goes on this great journey from where, like, we first meet him when he's in, is it Juvie? I think it's Juvie. I don't think it's full-blown prison. And, like, he... Lila helps him out because Lila's, you know, doing Christian things and helping people. And he ends up living with Buddy and bringing out this amazing side of Buddy. And like, you just watch this kid kind of like find himself and you're really rooting for him. And then he just disappears. And I think one of the most shocking things that we learned in our interviews with the writers was that, um, we were the first people to ask them whatever happened to Santiago? And they actually, thankfully, gave us a little bit of an answer that might not be what you expected. I'm reluctant
4: to say (laughs) because I remember asking that question in season three when we were all like, oh, we come back. And I was like, so where's Santiago? And I remember Jason being like, "Uh, let's not worry about it. And I was like, but how do you adopt it (laughs) I mean, worry about it. And then guess stereo, what? Though. Nothing happened. He, but that's the thing. He was right. Like, Sam was literally the first person to ask in in 10 years what happened to Santiago.
3: No one has ever asked. Um, I do remember it being a running joke in the writer's room, though. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. It was like Santiago oh, yeah. popping up. Right. Like, in season
4: four, we were like, and then he's driving down the street. Yeah. And he turns, and it's Santiago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. Santiago, you know, went on to a um, long and happy career in, in broadcasting somewhere. That's what I like to think. But
0: <laughs> So, Darren, how do you feel about Santiago potentially having a career in broadcasting? I, I mean, I love it. Again, like, I would... My version of Friday Night Lights Season 6
1: would be Santiago co-hosting a local sports show with Tim Riggins. That's that's <laughs> all I want. It's just them talking with, with occasional cuts back to the Swede and his burgeoning career as a, as a hipster rock star. Um, one of the things that I think is... One of the reasons why I realized I had such a vivid memory of Santiago is that his storyline is very closely wrapped in with Buddy's storyline. And mm-hmm. Buddy, who when we first met him was such a larger than life figure and who in some ways season one, you can almost call it the fall of Buddy to a certain extent. Like it's him losing a lot of things that mattered to him. I realized watching season two that the reason why Buddy is always a great character, even when the show was not at its strongest, is everything for him comes back to football. Even scenes that are not about football are somehow related to the Dylan Panthers for him. And so his relationship with Santiago is this interesting sort of back and forth of I'm doing this for the good of the team, but I'm also maybe learning for the first time in my life, even though I have multiple children, how to be a parent and how to be an available parent. And I talked to him a little bit about the Santiago plot line, and he made the really good point that in some respects, that is a kind of dry run for, for some plot lines that happen with him later in the show.
6: Well, in my own mind, he, he did well. And, um, he lived with me and did well and, and did well enough to grow into a man and finish the school year and, and learn a lot in in the process of football and just living with me. And then, uh, you know, I, I guess Buddy learned a lot. So that I, I would expect, yeah, if if we were just supposing and what would be cool would be that he grew up and went off and found, found what maybe was his real family and, and found himself and you know, got a job and and did well. I mean, I would hope that's what would happen with, with that character, rather than than joining back up with his gangster buddies and stuff. I I, I think it would be I think it would be uh, the fabric uh, more in tune with the fabric of the show if if he did change as as Buddy Jr. did, and then that may be what that came from. You know, that whole Buddy Jr. coming back. And being uh, having problems in California, and then coming home, and then changing, and and, and uh, maybe that was maybe that was the ghost of Santiago that they that they had, you know that was their way of explaining, you know, that idea that they had about Santiago was, wow, let's bring Buddy Junior back home and let him be the Santiago character that we were trying to develop. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe that was it
1: he kind of brings up the idea that that storyline is an initial attempt to to do what the Buddy Jr. storyline will be in season five. And Mm. I think that's also something I would tell people watching season two for the first time is you're just seeing a lot of ideas that will get played out in a much better fashion in later seasons. I mean, you know, Santiago, in some respects, is also kind of a call forward to what we see happen to Vince, this idea of this character from the other side of Dylan sort of, you know, becoming a football star. And, you know, even stuff like... early in season two, the new coach seems to be kind of making a power play move against Buddy to kind of push him out of his position of power. And that is all about season four and all about what, you know, Papa McCoy will do as far as kind of playing the politics against him. And even in a way, you know, that great moment between the new coach at the start of the season when he's saying, like, you know, thanks a lot for kicking me out of my job. That seems like an interesting reflection of what will happen to Coach Taylor at the end of Season 3. So there's just there's moments like that that you want to say, this is the show kind of trying stuff, and it will do it perfectly when they do it later on. So, you know what? Good for you, Santiago.
0: <laughs> good for you, bud. No, but I think you I think you bring up a good point in that Season 2... It's this weird combination of A being the season where they try everything, but B not getting to be a full season. So it's like they, you know, who's to say that maybe they wouldn't have brought some of these storylines around and it wouldn't have been this beautiful conclusion, but because of the writer's strike. It just it ends with Jason Street asking what's her face to have the baby, and then like it's like, hey, end of season. And I didn't realize there was a writer strike when I saw that the first time, and I was like, what just happened?
1: Well, well, let me tell you, just like you know, a little bit of a, a contemporaneous storyline. Um, the writer strike was. It's hard to imagine now, Sam, when we have literally, like, while we've been recording this, there have been 15 new TV shows that that just (laughs) launched on streaming networks and on cable. There was a time, people, in early 2008 when there was just no new television on anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, the networks all went on strike. But the interesting thing was, and I'm forgetting how it worked with the scheduling, somehow Friday Night Lights Ran for quite a while into the writer's strike. So, a lot of other shows on network. We're getting, you know, we're going dark and airing these sort of like mid-season finales. And FNL was airing new stuff. So for for me, for a while, in my memory, that was kind of the only show that had new episodes on. And I always mm-hmm. remember the last episode of the season, as you mentioned, it ends with Jason Street talking to the waitress who he who is considering, you know, is she going to have the baby? Is she not going to have the baby? Again, an interesting interesting way that they have of talking about that in a way that feels like, That's a topic that'll be explored much, much more with Becky in season Mm -hmm. four. But the last words of the season are Jason saying, give it a chance. It really feels to me like the show is saying, people, we've been on a bit of a journey this season. (laughs) We had sisters and we had Santiago and we had a tornado and we went to Mexico Give it a chance. And I really vividly recall ending that episode being like, God dang it, I really want more Friday Night Lights. And then miraculously, we did get some more. So we can now enjoy this season in its proper context, I think. Um, Sam, uh, was there anything else from the season? Any other bits and bobs that you noticed uh, upon rewatching it?
0: I will say I always enjoyed Tyra like briefly playing volleyball for Tammy. Just because I love Tyra and Tammy so much. Like Into it. I'll watch it all day.
1: That storyline, everything they do in this season with establishing the other sports at the school is so Mm -hmm. awesome. They bring in the idea that Eric has to become the athletic director of the whole school, Mm -hmm. which leads to my favorite character who's almost barely around, but the soccer coach who's like this noble (laughs) person who comes in and says like, oh, that's so cool that you have an office. I don't even have a phone. Like that stuff's all great. I almost want to say like, I sort of would have been okay with it had the show continued on in this direction of being like, we're now going to be about more sports. And in the same way that, you know, we'll kind of track Eric and his, you know, kind of larger-than-life stuff with the football team. I love that volleyball team. There's a great scene after they win their first victory where they're, like, partying at the Taylor House. And I'm like, yo, I would watch this show, like, all night. This is fantastic. That stuff's all great. I also want to call out uh, that there is a interesting... Interesting stuff about the ages this season. Sam, you know know this is one of my predilections, is trying to figure out how continuity works on the show. They're generally pretty careful about not establishing how old characters are, what year they are. It's established this season that Julie is 16 at the start of season two. Now... You know, maybe she has an early birthday. Generally speaking, if you're 16 at the start of a school year, you're in your junior year of high school. But mm-hmm. as we learn later, she's a sophomore. That's fine. You know, we you, we can kind of like uh, go along with that. It's established that Matt Saracen is 17 this season, which means here's a here's a fun uh, here's a fun little little thinker for you. In Carlotta's last episode. She says, uh, "You know, Matt, uh, I'm going to a consigniera," and Matt says, "What is that?" And she says, "That's uh, when a girl celebrates her fifteenth birthday." So they go there, and you want to just say, "Hey, Carlotta, you know, it's funny. Matt also just celebrated his his fifteenth birthday about two years ago, so this is this is really fun for him. It must be interesting for you." Um, last little interesting note about this season. Uh, Peter Berg, who of course developed the show and directed the fantastic pilot, he's such a great actor as well. I'd highly recommend mm-hmm. everyone go see The Last Seduction if, if you want to see just great Peter Berg acting job. He comes in in the last episode of this season as Moe McArnold, a truly malevolent figure um, who has established he is a former boyfriend of Tammy's from high school. Yes. Now Sam... Moe Mcardle at one point describes himself as a third-generation Dylan citizen. It seemed at the beginning of the show that the Taylors had kind of just recently arrived in Dylan. Like you know, we know that Eric Taylor had been working with Street for a couple of years, but nothing, very little about that season seems to imply that they are from Dylan. So it's this mm-hmm. interesting thing of like, already you're kind of like, wait a second. So if they dated, are they from Dylan? What's going on here? So Sam, my theory is, I've been building this for a while. <laughs> the way to understand season two is season one happens. Season one is, you know, everything that happens there is is all real. Season two, it's kind of an alternate universe, basically, where, like, just characters are a little bit different, and Waverly isn't around anymore. and like some things that happen in season one don't really come into effect, and some things many things that happen in season two will not ever be mentioned ever again. <laughs> so the the one problem with that theory, of course, Sam, I don't need to tell you, is if it's all an alternate universe, then how is it possible that Jason Street's child comes into play in season three? So I put my thinking cap on, Sam, and I realized what it is is it's a flashpoint. At the end of season two, you know, unfortunately, the the writers didn't get into this when we talked to them, but I have to assume the end of season two was going to be Landry traveling back in time to reset the timeline so that he didn't actually kill that guy and all that didn't happen. And that's why season three, there's just, you know, a lot of stuff that seems important is no longer important. Landry and Tyra aren't together. Nobody ever talks about the death. Nobody ever talks about really anything from season two. But, but... As so often happens when you retcon a timeline, you know, some things do kind of maintain, and one of them is is Jason Street's father. So I have to assume there was a pretty cool Flashpoint episode at the end of season two, but we never got there, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) I am so impressed, and I loved that you mentioned the final words of this season because I feel like that's how I feel about season two. If someone says, what should I do? I would say, give it a chance.
1: Give it a chance. There are so many beautiful moments This show's fundamentals are so strong that... If there's any episode, the worst episode of this show is probably in season two, and it's still pretty good. And even in in an episode like that, if there's a scene between Eric Taylor and Tammy Taylor, and they're in the kitchen talking, that is better than 99.9% of anything that's been produced on television. And I, I think that that, to me, is why I would still recommend season two. Is It's a great example of, here is a show where the fundamentals are so strong, the characters are so strong, the, the dynamic is so strong strong you know yes this is the only season where someone would say out loud we just stole three thousand dollars from the biggest meth dealer in in dylan but you know you know listen there are meth dealers in dylan and now we know about them and now we never need to mention them ever again so i think it's not the best season but in some respects maybe the most important season for establishing what the show would and would not do going forward
0: i do at the end of the day i think i'm ultimately a season two defender i agree that it's the weakest season in a lot of ways but again i will repeat myself tim riggins moves in with the (laughs) Taylors, and that's all you need to know as far as i'm concerned but darren any final thoughts uh you know i'll
1: always uh support any show that wants to do something different And shark DNA and a a heavy focus on uh, girls' soccer was definitely a different move for Friday Night Lights, and I really support that. But, uh, you know, we want to hear from all you listeners out there. Uh, You can email us your thoughts about Season 2. Our email address is binge at ew.com. And hey, while you're at it, uh, tweet at us some of your favorite moments from Season 2, or... If you have less favorite but somewhat crazy moments, uh, tweet us those as well. I'm at Darren Franich. Sam, what's what's your handle?
0: It's at Sam Highfill.
1: At Sam Highfill. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back next week talking all about my personal favorite season of Friday Night Lights. (gasps) It's a farewell to some characters, a hello to some characters. Uh, It's season three. Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. We want to hear from you.